Well, a few weeks ago, uh, we had a bunch of storms here. And I'll be honest, it's been a while since I've lived in a part of the country where that many storms. And it seems to be happening pretty often. And something happened on my phone for the first time that I've noticed, at least, and that I, it, all of our phones in the house went off. Did this happen to any of you guys? Like everybody's phones, yeah, were just going off. And I looked down and it said, take cover immediately. Uh, that there's a tornado and the sirens are going off. And I hadn't heard sirens, uh, you know, except for the test in a long time. And so, of course, the first thing that I did when my phone warned me to go take shelter, to care for my family, to get gathered around in the safest place in the house, was to do what? To go outside. <laughs> exactly. That's what you do, right? When you're warned to take shelter, you go the farthest place from shelter out in the open. No. So I went and I, and I wanted to just take a look around. And as we know, everything, at least for our area, was fine. Uh, but I didn't listen to the warning. And, and this week I found some, some video uh, of a place in uh, England. There's a bridge called the Ford Bridge. Has anybody heard about this at all? Uh, some of you have seen some of this. And uh, it's this place in England that it actually now has been closed because of what you're about to see. But there's this road that often this part gets low and it floods often. There's signs everywhere warning people not to take the road. There's a detour they show that takes one extra minute to do that. But of course, do people listen to the warnings? Let's take a look at this video here for a second. See, first this Range Rover, no problem, man. I mean, that car's built for that. It makes it through, no problem. This guy, though, on the other hand, he's like, yeah, I can do it. Oh. It, it looks like maybe it's still going, but then right here, it's now loading. <laughs> you, can, you think that's some great camera panning? No, no, no. That's the car moving. Look at that sucker. Just, uh, oh, it's... That's a pretty nice vehicle, too. At least it was. So then I love this. They tied it to They're pulling it. I don't know if you can hear it here, but it's scraping against the rock. These are not the sharpest tools in the shed. Okay, what about this car? This guy surely can do it. He's going to go tentatively. He's heeding the warning, but he's... Oh, yeah, no. No, it's, it's not good. Now, I, I, I cut some of this video. There's actually a family in there with a little kid. Do that. So they're pulling this out. The guy in this SUV, this big Jeep, he's pulling him out. Uh, so he's being a good Samaritan. And of course he thinks, you know, once he does that, of course he's got to do this. He has no problem. He's filming the guy next to him. He goes through it. Look at no problem, man. He's going to... Wait a minute. Something's happening here. Uh, you can start to see the smoke. And then you can see these camera guys. They're, they're following because they know that things are not going well. And this car's going down the road. And uh, slowly but surely, you're going to see here, it's got a pullover. And then I just, I, I love this. This is the next shot here. That's the car. <laughs> I can take care of this. I'm not going to heed the warnings here. And then this one, I'm just going to show you. This is my favorite. This next car. This guy had no chance. Like, seriously, what was he thinking? Uh, he goes in there, and then here, I just love it. Watch, you're going to see. Boom, right there. <laughs> it's gone. These guys just didn't hear the warnings. They hadn't paid attention. Plenty of sign and they ruined their cars. But things can get a little more dangerous than just uh, you know, ruining your car and maybe being uh, internet famous. Things can be really serious if you don't heed the warnings. Take a look at this clip. A school bus driver didn't know what he was getting into when he tried to drive through a flooded road in Texas. 
Police in Leander released this video from the bus. The driver seems to ignore a barricade that was put up by authorities after heavy rain caused flooding in Austin. At the time, there was only one child on the bus. The road seems safe for a while after that barricade, but soon the driver comes to a flooded area. He tries to drive through it, but the water was so deep it covered the hood. And soon he loses control and the water carries the bus away. They float downstream for a while until authorities say the bus was stopped by a clump of trees. The driver and the child had to be rescued. The bus driver was fired and charged with endangering a child and failure to obey warning signs. Police say they hope the video serves as a warning for others about the dangers of driving in flood conditions, because those roadblocks are put there for a reason. The bus driver was fired, right? So there's a good end of the story there that obviously wasn't smart enough and wise enough to be caring for those kids, but they didn't heed the warnings. And luckily, there was only one child in there, and they were safe, but things could have been much worse, right? There's warnings all the time that we ignore. Just recently uh, in the news, there was, uh, you guys remember the situation with Ocean Gate's Titan and the tragedy that happened there, and there's an ongoing legal battle there. Uh, but, so I don't want to get into the details of that. We don't really know all the full details, but there has been uh, emails released that they were warned that this would happen. I wanted to share with you just a little bit some of these emails. This is from a notable nautical expert. Uh, it says, I've given everyone the same honest advice, which is that until a sub is classed, tested, and proven, it should not be used for commercial deep dive operations. As much as I appreciate entrepreneurship and innovation, you are potentially putting people at risk. So I implore you to take every care in your testing and trials and be very, very conservative. And the response from the CEO, I've grown tired of industry players who try to use a safety argument to stop innovation. Since, he lists their names, and I started OceanGate, we have heard the baseless cries of you're going to kill somebody way too often. I take this as a personal insult. And this expert responded, I think you're potentially placing yourself and your clients in a dangerous dynamic. Ironically, in your race to Titanic, you are mirroring that famous catchphrase, she is unsinkable. See, from closed roads to the Titan to the Titanic, to the Challenger, those of you who might remember that, we can look throughout history and see examples of people not paying attention to the warnings. And sometimes they pay the price, and oftentimes it's just you ruin your car. But often it's much, much steeper of a price. Well, we're in the home stretch of this summer series, Summer in the Miners, and each week we've been looking at one of the minor prophets. Uh, the minor prophets, there are 12 of them, are often called uh, the Book of the Twelve. That's originally how these books were put together. And they've been separated in our English Bible to help us uh, see the, the progression that happens with them. In our modern, modern English Bibles, we see that they're called the Minor Prophets, not because they're less important, as we've talked about, but simply because they're shorter. And as we've been going through these books, you probably have been starting to pick up a theme it's a recurring theme that all the prophets seem to be saying basically the same thing. And if you think that, you would be right. So while there's various themes that we've seen in each book, they're all driving at the same overall theme, and they're all serving as warning signs. 
Warning signs for the people of Israel and Judah and the surrounding nations and warning signs for us. Just like many of us today, the people who heard these original prophecies from these prophets didn't heed the warnings. And as we've been looking at these, you might be thinking, I don't get it. These people are idiots. How can they not pay attention to the warning signs? God specifically says what's going to happen, and then time and time again, they see the the actual historical evidence of it happening. These prophets predict that they will be conquered and destroyed, and they're conquered and destroyed. He will predict these judgments that are going to come upon the people, and it happens. And we think, how many times do these people have to hear this message before they listen? How many of you parents have said the same thing? How many times do I have to tell you before you'll listen? And we do need to cut them some slack. Uh, the course of these minor prophets, as we look at it, this is spanning a 300-year period. So it's not like us. They don't have the luxury that we have to be able to read these every week and think, how do you guys not understand this? But yet the warnings were clear. God was specific. And they didn't listen to the warnings. Well, this week we're in the book of Zephaniah. So if you've got your Bibles, once again, open up to the table of contents and, turn, and look for Zephaniah if you're not sure where that is. Right towards the end, it's about there if you look in your Bibles. It's a book that, as with most of these books, we don't spend a lot of time in. But we're going to look today at the book of Zephaniah. And as we've been doing, we're going to do a flyover, give you kind of some highlights of the book, and then I want us to see what is God trying to tell us today through this book. So we start with the book of Zephaniah, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi. Maybe that was his nickname, I don't know. The son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. So Zephaniah gives us a little bit more lineage here. And, and, and scholars often say the son of Hezekiah, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you might know as a king Hezekiah. And, and the thought is that this Zephaniah was most likely a descendant of the king. He was royalty. He, he wasn't just some obscure person plucked from anywhere. He was well known. He had a standing in society. And it says he is preaching here, prophesying during the reign of Josiah. And we talked about Josiah last week and a little bit the week before Matt shared with us about Josiah. Josiah was the youngest king in Israel's history. He came, or in Judah's history, he came uh, to power when he was eight years old. I don't know how many of you would be willing to have an eight-year-old run your nation, uh, but if you read in 2 Kings, the story of Josiah, you'll see that uh, God used him in amazing ways. He was called the best king that the kingdom had ever had. Better than David. This was a young man who followed after God. And we heard a little bit last week of some of the excavations that he did in trying to reform the nation. And so Hezekiah is preaching most likely right at the beginning of Josiah's reign before a lot of the, uh, the changes had taken place. So we see that, that, jo- or that Zephaniah is the great-grandson of King Hezekiah. And in this time period, if you remember, we're talking about two nations mostly, God's people, Israel and Judah, the northern and the southern kingdom. And Israel, the northern kingdom, has already been destroyed. That's already happened in what we've read. And Is- or Judah is still standing. And Zephaniah, 
The book of Zephaniah appears here as almost a summary of everything that's taken place. And it's a hinge of what's going to happen next. Because this it marks the time period that's called the pre-exilic period, before the exile of Judah. Israel's already been conquered, but Judah is still intact. And so Zephaniah kind of serves as a summary of all that we've heard, the final warning, if you will, to the people. This mentions, uh, Zephaniah is really famous for mentioning often over 20 times the day of the Lord. If you remember in our study of Joel and a little bit Amos, we talked about the day of the Lord. This day that, that we often can look at and say that must be talking about uh, the end of the world. And sometimes it is, but, but more often what we've seen so far is it was just a great act that God was about to, to enact. A move of God that usually symbolized judgment upon a nation. But here in Zephaniah, we're hearing some of that, but we really are seeing a very clear picture of the day of the Lord, the end of the world. There is a lot of Zephaniah that's speaking to the people of Judah and the surrounding nations, but that is specifically talking about a greater judgment to come. So I just want to give you a quick outline if you're one of those folks that love uh, to kind of get a lay of the land. Remember, we're trying to encourage you to read these books each week as you go through them. This is three chapters. It could take you probably about 10 minutes to read. And so if you're one of those folks that like an outline, here's a quick outline of the book of Zephaniah. The beginning of Zephaniah is the judgment on Judah. God telling him, this is what's going to happen because of what you've done. And he lays out the sins of the people. Then in chapter 2, we see the judgment of the nations. That Judah isn't going to be going through this alone. God is a God of justice. We've seen that throughout this series. And that he is going to bring justice and judgment to all of the nations. Then in chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3, we see judgment of Jerusalem, the capital. Bringing things home for the people. That they're not going to be able to withstand this. They're not going to, going to somehow escape from this wrath, from this day of the Lord that's coming because of the sin that they've had in their lives. And then the end of Zephaniah, verses 8 through 20 of chapter 3, talks about salvation, the saving of the world at the day of the Lord. But let's read here Zephaniah starting in verse 2. He comes out guns blazing. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. There's a great way to start, right? Let's just feel the love. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah. And against all who live in Jerusalem, I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this very place. The very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry hosts, to those who bow down and swear by the Lord and also swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. This is not encouraging words. When you open up your devotional app on your phone, this is not the words that you want to see pop up. God says, I'm going to destroy everything. Almost a reversal of creation. And he tells them why. He says, because you've become so corrupt. 
There's so much sin, it's rampant among you. He calls some of it out, uh, worshiping Baal, and we've talked about who Baal is over the last several weeks. Bowing down on roofs to worship the starry host, they're just worshiping the earth, the stars, and also those who bow down and swear by the Lord. So they're following God, right? But they're also, they've mixed it with other religions and they're following Molech. Now we've mentioned Molech a couple times. Molech is this God that they would often sacrifice their children to. And they would do this so that they would get favor, so that things would go well for them, so that their life would be more convenient. We see once again this sin that time and time again we see in the minor prophets. Idolatry. Now this seems silly to us in our modern times, in our modern world, because we wouldn't worship some statues in our house. No, our idols are much more civilized. And we certainly wouldn't offer sacrifices of our children in order to get a better life. That's barbaric. We would never kill innocent babies in order to make our lives more convenient. We would never do that, would we? See, idolatry is anything that takes priority over God. And so we read these, we think, these people, don't they see the warnings? How stupid are they? But the idols that we have in our lives are just as powerful and just as deadly. There's an idol that many of us have in our pockets that we keep with us all the time. And it drives the decisions that we make our phones, through social media, through things that we read, through status. We have idols of pleasure. We want to feel good. Now, we might express that in ways that, we, that most of us would just say, well, yeah, but uh, we know that pornography and sexual desire and all that, that, we know that's wrong, but what about the other ways that we try to seek pleasure, that we put something above God in our lives? Our idolatry today might look a little different, but it's nonetheless as deadly. And it breaks the heart of God. When we put our jobs, our vacations, my, one of my favorites, our me time. It's a phrase that I didn't know when I was a kid, but now I say it all the time. I need some me time. I need self-care. All these things that we put above the Lord, when we do that, we're worshiping idols. Parents, when you elevate your kid's sports schedule and activities above the Lord, you're sacrificing your kids on an altar of success and achievement. Guess what? Hate to break it to you, your kids are not going to be pro athletes. <laughs> now, there's nothing wrong with doing well in sports or doing well in school, or being part of a travel league, or having hobbies or school activities. But when it takes precedence over God in your life, that's practicing idolatry. When I was in student ministry, every once in a while, we'd have a student who would abruptly stop attending. Uh, they'd been faithful, they'd been coming, they'd been active, they were excited to be there and learn, and then they would just maybe not be there one, one Monday at one of our Bible studies or something. And of course, we'd call and just see how things were going, and uh, this was before the, the era of cell phones, so you actually had to call their house, and most likely their parents would answer the phone. And I can't tell you how many times they would say, yeah, well, um, you know, Johnny, he, he, he's grounded. I was like, oh, really? He's like, 
yeah, he, uh, he was out past curfew or he got caught doing whatever it was. And so he's grounded. I'll say, so he's, he's grounded from Bible study? Oh yeah, he's grounded from everything. And I don't usually give out unsolicited parental advice or prescriptions that fit every detail because I know every kid's different and so this might not always be the case, but I'm gonna go out on a limb and tell you parents in the room here, don't ground your kids from church. It's not accomplishing what you think it's accomplishing. It might be sending a mixed message if you ground your kids from being with the Lord and learning about Him, being with those who are. Now, we might seem more sophisticated. We can't imagine the people of Israel not paying attention to the warning signs that God keeps posting, but we ignore these same warnings as our families slowly tear apart. As we put status and how many likes we have who's commenting on our posts or who do we spend time with during the week who are these these things that elevate who we are and for for us adults we might say well i don't play that game but yet we work harder and harder at work so that we can climb up a ladder so that we can put something above the rightful place of the Lord. Because the reality is we all want to worship something. It's built into our DNA. The problem is, and the problem was for the people of Judah, they had made it themselves. And we worship things that aren't God, it divides our hearts. This is breaking the first commandment that the Lord gave, that he keeps reminding these people of time and time again in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And to ask the Lord to give us an undivided heart. There's a passage in Psalm 86, 11 that says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. So let me ask you, what have you set your heart on? What have you set your heart on? Now, Zephaniah goes on and he tells us what I think is the heart of all of the problems that Israel and Judah and even us are facing. Now, idolatry may be the result, but it's the outcome of something very specific. And it's not something as dramatic as sacrificing your children. Look in chapter 1, verse 12. It says, And at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are murderers, drug dealers, sexual predators, stealers, liars. No, what does it say? I will punish those who are complacent. Complacent. Who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Complacency. That is the key to what's happening to these people. And that's the key to what drives the sin in our lives, complacency. Now, complacency might be def is defined as this. Webster's Dictionary says it's a self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. In other words, you're so sure that it's all about you that you don't pay attention to the warning signs complacency. 
Now, this passage, if you're reading along there in the NIV, it says, who are like wine left on its dregs. And that's the only, one of the only main translations that puts that in there. It's actually a time when the NIV is being very specific and literal. Most other passages will say there, who are stagnant. So what does that mean, wine left on its dregs? The time there, in order for them to keep wine from going bad, it would get transferred, it would get moved from container to container. If it just sat sediment would form at the bottom and it would be gross, kind of like your coffee, right? The end of the drink, the worst part of your coffee is all the grounds that are at the bottom, the junk, because it becomes stagnant, complacent. Just thought everything's okay. And notice what they say about God here. It says complacency isn't just what they do in their own actions, it's what they think about God. They think God is complacent. The Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. See, compared to idol worship and child sacrifice, complacency doesn't seem so bad. There's a well-known fable, all of us are familiar with it, the tortoise and the hare. In this story, the hare decides just to take it easy. Of course he's going to win. Stops on the side of the road and gets beat so satisfied with themselves, they're not paying attention to the things around them. They view God as complacent, and so that they must think that also means that I can just be complacent. There's a verse in Revelation chapter 5. It says, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, complacent, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus said in Matthew 7, anyone who hears these words of mine but doesn't follow them, that's complacency, is what? A foolish man who built his house on the sand. I read this definition or a statement this week from the commentary of the theology of work, and it says complacency, or the result of complacency, is not atheism, but idolatry. Most of the world, if you ask, especially even our nation here, do you believe in a higher power? Most would say yes. But they think the Lord, eh, he won't do good or bad. He's just there. Just some guy. Complacency doesn't usually drive people to not believe in God forces the, or it leads them to build their own gods, to put other things above the one true God. So what causes us to ignore these warnings? It's the same thing that causes grown men to drive their cars into water when they've been warned. Idolatry is fueled by complacency. Now you would think, as we read through this, that Judah, after seeing the destruction of Israel, after seeing the warnings that the Lord has laid out, would have listened. But we read this in chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Of Jerusalem, God himself says this, Of Jerusalem I thought, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her place of refuge would not be destroyed, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them. All my fierce anger, the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. 
We've heard about this day of the Lord a few times in our Minor Prophets study. As we said earlier, a lot of them, they're, when they talk about the day of the Lord, they're talking about something specific that would happen to these people and the surrounding nations. But the day of the Lord is also a phrase used to speak of the great judgment that will come to all at the end of time. And here in Zephaniah, it's pretty clear. It says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. Then in chapter 2, 15, that day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. God will judge all people all nations. And as we've seen, as we've unpacked these minor prophets, we've seen, we've talked about God's justice and his righteousness, and it's, he is a God of judgment, and judgment is just. And we've seen how we would not want it any other way. We wouldn't want to serve a God who doesn't demand that justice be served. It's required. We've also seen a God who is patient, slow to anger, not wanting any to perish. So we're given these warnings. And Zephaniah is God's final warning to the people of Judah. And often these warnings are devastating, but they're delivered as discipline, correction to prepare us for that eventual day of the Lord when there won't be any more warnings. God's judgment is meant to purify the people. His discipline brings blessing. We're going to see that. We've seen this a few times in the Minor Prophets, but God uses the pain, excuse me, uses the pain that he delivers for his purposes. And the judgment of God is meant to lead us to repentance. We're to be purified by that fire. And while that process is painful, it's a reminder that God's judgment is meant for our good. He doesn't want to punish, he desires to bless. If you're following along, Look at chapter 3, starting in verse 9. If you really people like to write in your Bible, circle this word. Then, after all this judgment, this purification, God trying to make us right, to warn us, he says, then, then, after the judgment, comes the blessing. And here we get a glimpse of the restoration that God so desperately wanted for us all along. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people, Cush is just Ethiopia, just saying beyond the earth, on that day you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will move, remove from you your arrogant boasters, Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. 
They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. All of God's judgment, it was leading to something. And here at the end of Zephaniah, we're about to see God's true motivation for all of this. Once again, it's not to punish us, it's to make us holy. We come to the, probably the most famous passage in Zephaniah. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Those of us who are parents know the joy that we feel when someone tells us how great our kids are. I've had the privilege and honor to hear many times some great things about my girls. And I know that that's mostly due to my wife. But I still love to hear it. And the same thing applies to my wife. Throughout the years when people come up to me and share how her teachings or her conversations have challenged them to grow in their relationship with God, it brings me joy. I love to hear people talk about those I love in such amazing ways, about how they've been a blessing. And you know what? I'm proud. Not in a I did that sort of way, because of course, if you know me, you know better, but because I take joy in who they are. And that's what God's wanted all along, to take joy in us. That's the picture that Zephaniah leaves with us. God is rejoicing over us. We rejoice, we sing, we exalt God, but he lifts us up. He sings a song over us. It's a beautiful picture of a loving parent holding his children in his arms, singing over us. Because we're now who we were meant to be. How can this happen? How can we get from all that destruction and judgment to God rejoicing over us? Because while this message was directed to the people of Judah and the surrounding nations, what Zephaniah is talking about is the day of the Lord. It applies for all of us. And the answer, how can we have God rejoice over us, even though we're people who so often mess up, is found in Zephaniah 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. You who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you'll be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. It's that recurring theme that we've heard over and over again, righteousness and humility. Stop chasing satisfaction in things and relationships, your jobs, your kids, your security, and seek the Lord. Stop worshiping other idols. Stop worshiping ourselves and seek the Lord. Now we see here, as with many of the minor prophets, the prophet's name has a deeper meaning in the message. We've seen that in most of our prophets so far. And Zephaniah's name means to be hidden in the Lord, sheltered in God. Zephaniah tells us to seek the Lord, to live in righteousness, and humble yourselves, and we will be sheltered. We will be hidden. That's how on the day of the Lord, when the world will ultimately be judged, we can stand before him with pure lips, as it said, and rejoice. And our God will rejoice over us. His now perfect children 
who are with him, his spotless bride who brings him joy. See, judgment has to come, but we can be ready. Don't read the words of the prophets with complacency. We also don't need to read with fear. On the day of the Lord, where will you be hidden? Ask yourself this, where are you taking shelter? What's providing shelter for you now? Are you living for yourselves, for your own ways? Are you living for God's ways? Is it in yourself? Has pride let you become complacent? Do you feel like your relationship with God is good enough? Zephaniah actually talks about that in the passage we just read. It says to seek the Lord. Those of you who are following, you need to continue to follow. You can't just do it once and move on. Zephaniah 2.11 tells us that one day all nations will bow down to him. And Paul echoes Zephaniah's words in his letter to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 9-11, he says, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But for those who live for him, the day of the Lord will be a great day. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I want that. I read those warnings and the judgments I say, I want for the Lord to rejoice over me. I want him for one day at the end of my life to hold me in his arm and say, well done. You're with me. You didn't live for yourself, Stephen. You lived for me. Now, does that happen because of my goodness? No, it only happens because of who God is. It says that he will shelter us. We don't shelter ourselves. And that only happens because of the blood of Jesus. If you've got your communion, I want to encourage you to take that out. Now, if you didn't pick one up on your way in, there's some on the table in the back. This communion we take every week to remind us that we don't shelter ourselves. Because of the blood of Jesus, because of the sacrifice he made on the cross, we are sheltered by him. He makes us that spotless bride. He makes us that perfect children that can hold us in our arms so that one day we can be with him. That's not our work, it's his work. So I encourage you, take the bread. This bread reminds us of the body of Jesus Christ that was given for us, the sacrifice that was made so that we could be sheltered in his arms. Let's take this together. Jesus instructed us to take the cup to remind us of his blood, that it wasn't our work that made a way for us to be sheltered. It was his work. So we take this to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the sacrifice that you made for us. 
that you sent your son to die for us so that we could be sheltered in your arms, so that you could rejoice over us with singing, you who are mighty to save. We can't do it ourselves. We keep trying to, Lord. We keep trying to put things above you, but you, Lord, have made a way for us to have life through the blood of Jesus. We thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, we pray and the church together said, amen. We're going to close in just a moment, but I want to give you something to take away with you this week. We encourage you to read Zephaniah, but I also want you to look at Psalm 86. Psalm 86 is this beautiful prayer that really speaks to the heart of complacency, that speaks to the heart of us wanting to put other things above God, to not listen to the warning signs. And this is a prayer that I want to pray over you. And I encourage you this week, open up Psalm 86 and pray this prayer. So let me read this over you this morning. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all those who call on you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I am in distress, I call to you because you answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name, for you are great and do marvelous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever, for great is your love towards me. You've delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing.